we got the set in sunshine fresh air we got the team behind us so let's play too welcome to extended clip episode 51 i'm one of your hosts eddie averill i'm malcolm Baum. i'm jt white we're entering the baseball zone today uh, all three of us stepping on the diamond to talk about James L. Brooks's How Do You Know, his 2010 film, and Mr. 3000, uh, the 2004 film by Charles Stone III. These are baseball movies, uh, one of which more of a baseball movie with a romantic subplot, the other being more of a rom-com where two of the characters' careers are uh, you know, professional baseball. How did you like these movies, you guys? You know, it was it was great to wind up, or should I say, wind down with these movies, um, these baseball <laughs> movies. And uh, I think you know, I think this is some nice, lighthearted fare. These are two movies that you know didn't quite get their due, and I'm glad to talk about them. And hopefully, some people will put them on their screens. Yeah, neither of these movies struck out at all and we're both fantastic times uh yeah i don't know i mean i was excited for the brooks i was uncertain of how the uh bernie mac fair would go but he was so charming and uh they were both fun yeah mr 3000's movie that i've loved for a very long time and i watched it uh, again about six months ago and realized oh this is still a great movie it's not just for when i was a kid um, and then how do you know I'd been thinking about watching for a while because James L. Brooks is an interesting filmmaker and, you know, it's that late style and it's very critically reviled as like a 2.3 on Letterboxd. Um, about 30 minutes into this film, I realized I had seen it when it was first released. In theaters? I think I saw it in theaters and then I looked up the release date and I realized... I don't know if I watched this like on maybe it makes sense we went to the theaters during winter break to see this but maybe not it feels more like I watched this on cable like the next year you know when I was like 15 or 16 and definitely didn't like it back then but also definitely watched the whole thing damn well you've grown up since then you've you've you've, uh, you've blossomed into a man yeah, I mean, I've had this maybe happen on this podcast before, but it's a very strange sensation when you think you're watching a film for the first time, and half an hour into the film, you realize that you've seen it before, and the plot is like vaguely familiar, and certain lines of dialogue feel like you're having deja vu, only because you can barely remember having seen the film. Yeah, I get that. I get that less like I'll knowingly rewatch a film that I don't remember at all because I. My memory's not not great. I feel like any movies that I watched like two years ago, I could probably put on and not know what was going to happen. A, a good portion of them, at least. Uh, so this is a James L. Brooks film. We, we've talked about Spanglish on the pod. James L. Brooks is a returning champion, and we'll probably come back to him at some time, too. Uh, this one is along the lines of his other ones. It's a very talky, romantic comedy. This one, more so than the others, I feel like there's less uh, goings-on with the plot. It's a very basic love triangle where each character has, you know, a few uh, side characters involved in their own arc of the story. It's pretty self-contained, and yet it runs a pretty dry and long two hours with scenes 
basically of characters talking for five to eight minutes, almost like an Eric Romare film or something. Yeah, you know, now that you say that, I, I just realized most of uh, the movie take place or t- took place in like these uh, characters' nice uh, apartments. Yeah, it's definitely more of a subdued Brooks in that end. And I also, not like this is necessarily like a shot at the film, but I feel like things like Spanglish, uh, Broadcast News, Terms of Endearment, they're you, they're like tackling like a, a larger issue or will have like a more relevant like social theme. This seems very self-contained in a way that's like really, I don't know, nice and enjoyable. It's like a, a, a nice little small Brooks film. Yeah, like if you're looking into themes of it or whatever, like that it's tackling, it's really just the starting point of its upper mil- upper middle class ennui that, yeah, you see in a lot of European highbrow art films of the mid-century, but he's putting that into the style of the American uh, kind of middle-brow auteur rom-com realm that he dominates. Will, um... Oh. What is this? I think this is the opposite of a bus strike. <laughs> um, so, Reese Witherspoon is the star of the film. She plays Lisa, a softball player who is just aging out of her stint for the U.S. national team. Uh, Dean Norris cuts her from the team ruthlessly in the very beginning. And, you know, you could obviously apply that scene to Brooks at this point in his career uh, where the the critics are saying that he's slowing down he's not as quick as he used to be and his defenders uh the other coaches in the room there are saying that you know they saw the the skill the prowess uh to be a worthwhile asset for the team and you know looking at how people judged this film when it came out it was critically reviled and it was a huge box office flop uh, yeah, I definitely feel for Brooks in that department because he definitely still has it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, you know, what you guys are saying about like, you know, not too much going on. I feel like this might be maybe not the most Brooks film, but emphasizes on one aspect of his work where it's very character driven. And Brooks, all of Brooks's movies are very character driven. But I mean, this one, especially so as we spend, you know, um, a lot of time just hearing these characters talk and getting into like their own personal neuroses. I feel like Witherspoon's uh, protagonist is like very like much of the other like Brooks female leads where mm-hmm. it's like sort of an overachiever, very like planned out sort of life, like very meticulous in that sense, but like pretty neurotic. She has a CEO mindset quotes on her mirror. That's how driven <laughs> she is. <laughs> Yeah, you know that haters are her motivators for sure. <laughs> but she also has that dynamic that a lot of Brooks's women have in these films where she's very filled in as like a character, you know? I, I say realistic in the sense that it's a full three-dimensional person, but also there are the parts that's more of an expression of the genre, you know? Like she does the silly quirky things that romantic comedy characters do there's the first dinner that her and paul rudd have she suggests that he shuts up 
and they <laughs> eat their meal in complete silence. And it's a very kind of hokey romantic comedy thing that you could see in a in a 30s movie as much as a 70s or 90s or 2010s movie. You know, it's kind of a, a timeless uh, thing within this specific genre that works so well. I mean, I think that might also be a reason why critics at the time were like put off by Brooks's style. Like it's clear, like nothing has changed here in like the way he like makes a film, but I feel like public tastes might have like potentially like, especially like 2010, I think like there's a different expectation for realism and like the romantic comedies of the aughts. I think are definitely like phasing out at this point. And I don't know, like a lot of people don't like it because they think it's like hokey or like whatever bullshit, but it's so like charming and you get a lot of like really great performances out of it. Um, Rudd and Nicholson in particular, I think fucking rule. You have Paul Rudd almost in the Albert Brooks broadcast news role where he's, you know, the nice guy that's lovable and you see him at one point get drunk and party by himself kind of and uh, no no oh nip no thank you oh tonight Tonight i'm in the romantic mood yeah let's take a shower shower together He's vying for Reese Witherspoon's heart while she is infatuated with the true alpha of the film, Owen Wilson, uh, who, you know, not to keep going back to the broadcast news analog, but I did just watch it. So it's kind of like the William Hurt character. And he has these relationship dynamics that he's worked with for so long that he's able to focus on just building the kind of characters that are the most perfect for the stars that he's interested in. And this film in particular has so many just massive close-ups on Reese Witherspoon and Owen Wilson's faces. You know, uh, Janice Kaminsky shoots this film absolutely beautifully. Uh, and there are so many like really interior moments that you get out through those close-ups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the cinematography here is, you know, very warm and, you know, occasionally intense of kind of like that uh, romantic comedy like glossiness that you could see in other movies but i think here it looks even better because one this movie has the budget to make everything you know feel full and but two just kind of the attention to character moments kind of emphasizes these close-ups or like um these important romantic comedy moments and i think what you're saying jt about the public kind of turning on this type of romantic comedy you know maybe favoring a more apatow you know seth rogan you know, type uh, movie or whatever. Whereas like James L. Brooks is, you know, truly making a genre film here. He's exploring the cliches, some of the cliches that he established himself and, you know, finding nuances within them that are insanely pleasurable. I mean, like the, the recurring thing with Owen Wilson's character, uh, making a seemingly mature decision (laughs) for his state of emotional immaturity and then immediately (laughs) seeking, uh, reward points for that is so like metatextual about like his role within the romantic comedy formula you know like his character isn't supposed to make those good decisions and that's why brooks immediately always undercuts it with him asking for extra congratulations for making the right decision lisa okay first of all i'm not gonna ask you where you've been but i i get points for that right 
Not when you put it like that. Okay, I, I, I screw up. That's why I wrote something out that I wanna, that I wanna say to you. But... Okay. Okay, this will be good. Is it bad that I wrote it out? It's unusual. It's not bad. Stop asking me things like that. It's weird. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I went nuts when you left. I broke a lamp. Okay. Read me the thing. That was the thing. And we see that in its most extreme form in the hospital scene where Paul Rudd's uh, assistant, I guess, played by Catherine Hahn, is giving birth. And uh, right after that, the father of her child proposes to her. And it's just such a stunning scene here where this character we've never met before uh, comes into the room and starts monologuing at the you know fifth character of the movie uh and it completely steals the show and then uh paul rudd's character was supposed to have been recording it on a camcorder (laughs) and he goofed up because he's a big he's a big dummy and it's a it's a rom-com so he does he he's a putz and he messes up and so they have to like restage it and uh it obviously gets into all of the you know, meta stuff that you could ask for about restaging emotional moments like this. And uh, I don't know. I feel like Brooks is constantly undercutting himself in that regard in this film. And it's such a weird distancing thing because at the same time, uh, the emotional peaks of this film still hit just like his other ones. Yeah. And I feel like all the characters in this movie are constantly undercutting, undercutting themselves like you said, with Owen Wilson, you know, and his self-congratulatory nature when he does something right, or uh, just Paul Rudd's kind of neurotic in his head behavior, his inability to, you know, mm-hmm. express how he truly feels, or Reese Witherspoon kind of dealing with a new frontier here, kind of um, not knowing exactly where to go. And, you know, I think another scene that comes to mind is when she first finds out that Owen Wilson keeps a stack of hoodies for his hookups and and immediately gets mad at him and she storms off but then recollects herself and realizes, you know, why am I getting mad at a guy who is just being who he is? And she kind of uh, takes a mature step in that situation and it's that's I don't know, that's the type of logic that you would never see in like most mainstream romantic comedies, but it's 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 here. Leading up to this confrontation between Paul Rudd and Uh, his father played by Jack Nicholson he had been avoiding bad news about their company for the last 45 minutes of the film Uh, you see Jack early on and then you don't really see him again because he's just trying to get a hold of Paul Rudd who's avoiding the trouble that he knows he's about to get into so uh, when they finally confront each other and Paul Rudd you know gets at Nicholson and he critiques him for yelling at him and then he critiques his crying and it's like this confrontation is just one actor kind of critiquing the performance style of another you know (laughs) Uh, jack nicholson has been the perfect fit for the house style of james l brooks for whatever 40 years at this point going back to you know the way he slides right into that minor role of broadcast news and then later you know with as good as it gets and whatnot And then you have Paul Rudd clashing against that. And then you have the scene where he's directly telling him how to perform. Uh, It's just, it gets into so much stuff that I feel like critics kind of just gave up on caring about and just decided it was a bad movie half an hour in, you know? 
Or just being real fucking hung up on the price tag of this movie like a pussy. Like, that's yeah. the, like, don't, like, who gives a shit? Like, it turns, like, I mean, well, it probably was a little expensive, but hey, good picture. You win some, you lose some. This film cost $120 million, and it didn't even recoup half of that. Um, and I think that's, I guess, people just had a bone to pick with it before it even came out because of the budget. And it's like, who cares? A lot of the best films of all time are box office flops. You know, that's no way to no way to judge the quality of a picture. Yeah, and also, I mean, that's kind of best case scenario, right? Like, everyone gets paid. These actors get paid. James L. gets paid. And the studio loses out. I mean, that's fuck the studio. <laughs> like, let's let's get, you know pay the artists and let's hope the studio fails. I think that's a success. This is also just like a handful of huge movie stars and like a movie star level director in James Brooks, uh, like who deserve huge contracts for making huge movies. And the people failed this one. You know. Hmm. I also hate to say that when you go on Letterboxd for this film, the first two reviews are from, uh, let's just say, another couple of film podcasters who said that this film was bad and couldn't see beyond it. And it's like, how do you do a whole podcast about that film and not see its value, right? Yeah. I mean, more like blank minded. (laughs) (laughs) Blank (laughs) chick. There are just some, you know, shots in this that are very confounding. Um, And Mm -hmm. I think that's the same goes for every James L. Brooks film where, you know, there's a few things that sneak in there that go over the heads of most viewers until you watch it again and realize how much attention to detail is being put into every aspect of this film. And I think all the performances are, you know, just movie star level performances that don't otherwise really exist in the 2010s uh, in this capacity. And as much as I love They Came Together, which only came a few years later, I think that says a lot about what people are willing to buy about romantic comedies uh, post-2010. So I'm all here for reclaiming this one, and I'm giving it four bullets. What about you, Malcolm? I'm going to give it four bullets as well. I mean, this is a very intelligent film. And like I said, you know, a pure genre film. And there's just, you know, so much to like. I mean, you were talking about the photography of this film. I mean, one shot that comes to mind is near kind of uh, when Paul Rudd's putting it all on the line at the party Owen Wilson throws for Witherspoon. You know, you have the claustrophobic two shot you were talking about. And then it kind of uh, pans over into like a, a one shot for Reese Witherspoon as she's taking in some important information. You get like these nice... Uh, bokeh lights in the background and it's just it's it's so perfect it's so glossy and it's uh mm-hmm. i mean it there's so much craft into it and it's it's really striking at the moment it hits at the right time and uh you know character dynamics are really interesting too i mean i love how reese witherspoon doesn't really understand paul rudd's neuroses at least you know for the first half of the film it's just like she doesn't understand she doesn't quite understand being a failure and then uh yeah. she she learns it and um, you know, it, um, and I think the ending's nice too. I like the simplicity of the ending and the final shot of the bus stop. So, you know, very enjoyable movie. What about you, JT? Um, yeah, I'm also uh, firing off four bullets for this one. And extended clip is reclaiming this film uh, from the gutter and uh, giving it the rightful place it deserves. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think what Eddie mentioned earlier about 
uh, I think like the true the God Brooks scene is uh, Rudd re-recording the marriage proposal, and that's fantastic. But just like you spending two hours with these characters doing like I don't know very minimal action, like do you need them to be like compelling and interesting? And one like aspect of like Brooks's writing and direction that like shines through in every film is there are so many little details that I fall in love with uh, that are like such specific choices. Like one that came to mind in is just in the per- pure like bozo mode mania of Owen Wilson's character is uh, when he like decides to take the barbecue along with them like in the rain. Like when they're underneath oh, that umbrella, God, I love that. It's just like that little detail. It's like, of course. And then we, we toss in the barbecue, ladies. That's how you know a man really likes you. Like that's I'm- how you know, not what he <laughs> says to his boys, which is. I figure I'm in love with somebody when I wear a condom with the other girls. Okay. <laughs> Holy shit! I'm in love. And it's kind of like in Spanglish with the sandwich. Both of those are like highly fetishized plates of food that don't actually get to be eaten because of uh, the drama at hand, you know? Yeah, because, you know, if you love someone, you'll, you'll put the food down and you'll talk to them. And also <laughs> compare that compare that to uh, Paul Rudd's beta moment when uh, his, his girlfriend at the start of the film breaks up with him and he tries grilling a steak and he uh, eventually just throws it over his fence. we'll be right back on extended clip to talk about mr 3000 that's great but you know sometimes i think that one drink can uh, give you a little better perspective well not for me but i guess it depends on the person look if you want to have a drink you should just have a drink but keeping talking about it you know just make a decision looking for permission to drink if i want a drink i'll order a drink jesus do you know i don't know you i'm sorry I, I'm not good today. And we're back on extended clip. Before we get into Mr. 3000, uh, did either of you guys want to talk about anything else you saw this week? JT, I think you should lead it off. Okay, why not? I uh, I don't know. I haven't been, like, my little pea brain sometimes when we do uh, two episodes of the podcast uh, in a week. I can't, I, me can't handle all those movies. And so I need to like settle down with some mindless entertainment, some television. And so I've got a little uh, slice of some boob tube review for this week. I've been gnawing on uh, three shows in particular um, I Love New York, uh, Mad TV, and uh, Wonder Showsen. Um, I think I guess I'll start like first with just like a little Mad TV stuff. I saw that it was streaming on like uh, HBO Max, and because my folks have like a, a cable subscription, I was able to like check that out. It's just some dumbass streaming service where you could probably like uh, like download any of the shit they have on there, anyways. But like Mad TV has been hard to find, and uh, I've really wanted to run it back. Um, after like watching like some episodes as a kid, because I know it's like, I knew it was good comedy because when I watched it as a young boy, a lot of the sketches would really make me laugh, but also kind of scare me and unsettle (laughs) me. (laughs) Um, but yeah, no, I've watched the first few episodes of that, that they have on there. It's really funny. Um, definitely like 
problematic and like, I don't know, in the edgier vein of things. Certainly couldn't get away with that kind of shit today. Um, but they re do really interesting stuff with it. There's like early, like animation in like some of the early interstitials. Uh, of the show like related more to like the mad magazine aspect it's been fun i'm curious to see how the cast changes over like 14 fucking seasons so there's a lot of that there wait so mad magazine is that just like a magazine with miss swan and stuff <laughs> <laughs> um from my knowledge yes i think so but like literally the first gag or like sketch in mad tv is it's like they've set like it's a bunch of executives have like set up like the mad tv show and they like have worked out that business deal but they're like oh shit we need to find the cast and so it shows them just essentially like pulling like criminals off the street like hookers like drug addicts and uh, from to to ring together as the cast and they just all hitch up together in the back of a pickup truck and drive them to the show and i was like that's pretty good um, but yeah, Wonder Chosen and, uh, I Love New York are also just, like, weird oddities, I feel like, from an era of television that we have moved out of, and, I don't know, shit used to just be funny. I was just gonna say, I would go as far as to say that both I Love New York and Wonder Chosen are better than just oddities, and, like, straight up some of the greatest shows of the era. I would say so. I mean, with I Love New York, it, like, harkens back to a time, and I think, like, it's similar with something with, like, how do you know where, like, tastes in general used to be different. There's so mm -hmm. much, like, comedy to be found within the editing of I Love New York where they'll do, like, goofy, like, dream sequences or, like, oh, yeah. a, a, like change the perspective in, like, a lot of ways that I feel like now reality shows, like, try and do, like give as little like perspective from their side that it's just like not as funny or interesting it like mm -hmm. i love new york really keeps it moving from minute to minute yeah uh what about you malcolm you know i'm not even gonna pull a movie that i watched this week but rather one i watched a couple weeks ago a little sex comedy called my tutor where we have a a, a high school senior whose dad wants him to go to harvard so uh, he hires a tutor uh, who is hot, and they eventually form a relationship. And this movie kind of starts out as like a 80s sex comedy. You have a Crispin Glover being tied up to an S&M wheel, and uh, our lead falling, on a, falling asleep on a huge pair of tits, um, unable to have sex. He just, he's overwhelmed by the big tits and just falls asleep on them like they're a pillow. Probably the second best thing you could do. In that situation um but uh i don't know it's a movie that's not concerned about being good at all and i feel like that's what i enjoy about it um it does get a little bit like over dramatic and sappy towards the end but i mean it earns it maybe a little bit more than uh other types other similar types of movies have tried you know going for that and um, I watched it on Tubi, um, the boob Tubi, as I like to call it, because they have a lot of sleaze <laughs> on there. Um, and that's the only streaming service we endorse. I'm speaking for all of us. Oh, yeah, and, Tubi uh, fucking rules. They have so Tubi. much like genre shit on there. It's amazing. Yeah, I'll give it up for Tubi. I know they got Clifford on that bad boy. <laughs> that's how you know it's quality. Yeah, like JT said, like a great amount of uh, genre stuff. And uh, I've watched a lot of... Uh, 
you know, good and bad movies on there. Um, but this isn't this is an ad read. We're not sponsored. Um, although, you know, if any, you know, ad execs are listening, we will take sponsorship. We're not above that. Yeah, that's all I got to say. Go watch my tutor on Tubi. Eddie, what about you? Well, 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 um, I watched, um, see the timing here is weird because a little peek behind the curtain, we're recording out of sequence. So next week in the middle, I'm going to talk about a film I watched like three days ago. So I, I'm a little lost on all this, but I'll just go ahead and talk about the naked dawn by Edgar G. Ulmer. I watched this yesterday, a 1955 B Western, uh, by the king of poverty row himself edgar g ulmer this is a very stripped down film uh it is one of the few like westerns moving into uh then contemporary si- society that deals with uh not just mexican americans but just mexicans and uh unlike touch of evil i mean it has some white guys in brown face but i would say it hues closer to realism than something like touch of evil despite its far less uh resources and i don't know ulmer is just so good at making stuff out of nothing there are tracking shots in here that are just like yeah these are probably just in the fields out near the hollywood hills closer to burbank back in the 50s whenever Uh, or wherever but he's able to use camera movement proximity to the actors set design and all that good stuff to really immerse you into a different type of western than you're used to seeing and it's like the the depravity of the modern city is creeping in to the low budget western sets as uh modernity is you know fully creeping in and destroying the dream of the western uh much like in the film i talk i'll talk about next week bronco billy you don't like me because i don't sign autographs you don't like me because i don't smile for the camera you don't like me because i don't suck up to the press you don't like me because i make a lot of money But you love me because I'm one of the greatest hitters alive. Mr. 3000, uh, Charles Stone III's film from 2004, is a film starring Bernie Mac, and he plays Stan Ross, the titular Mr. 3000. Uh, Mr. 3000 gets his 3,000th hit and then retires. I ain't playing no more. And that means no more talking to you stank-ass reporters. Excuse me? Yeah, that's right. I'm talking to you, and I'm talking to you. And I say it's stank-ass. Well, why now? The Brewer is still in the race. Couldn't you wait until after the season? Man, I'd have quit last season. I didn't think you all going to try to block me from the Hall of Fame. But it don't matter. Because I got mine. 3,000. Like it or not, I'm a certified immortal. And ain't nothing in the world you sons of bitches can do about it. Nothing. Now, if any of you sportos are out there and you've seen any post-game interviews, you understand why. Sports reporters are awful. They suck. Yeah, they're an, uh, antagonistic. And, uh, I mean, uh, Stan Ross is right to besmirch him in this film. So, 
I think what's important to note here uh, for one approach to looking at this very undervalued, uh, really great film, in my opinion, is that it opens in television uh, or Academy ratio of 4-3. And you have a commercial with Stan Ross uh, taking batting practice. And a lot of this film goes back and forth between its widescreen format and its TV format. And I think it has a lot on its mind about, you know, uh, athletics being a televisual form and then the cinematic form of the romantic comedy uh, that's kind of off to the side of that in this film and how these two are able to interact with each other in this film. So, um, for the non-sportos out there, uh, the non-baseball heads who think 3,000 hits, is that is that good? Is that something people should want? Yes, it is. It's very important. What do you guys think about this movie? I mean, being not, not a baseball boy, the only 3,000 hits I know are the ones I'm taking out of a bong. Uh, so <laughs> uh, the sports aspects of this i wasn't like i don't know i was curious as it uh, as a bernie mac uh star vehicle and that was the main appeal um going into me but i mean like what you were saying with how it relates to television i think is really interesting because it does change the aspect ratio a lot and focus on the fact that especially with his love interest being like uh an espn style reporter um, I think there is that heavy focus there on sports of sports belonging more to the realm of television. But along with that, I feel like it's a particularly horny romantic comedy. I feel like you don't get that as often. Like I feel like the sex is usually saved for like sex thrillers and romantic comedies. It's just generally a little light kissing and then like laughing together in bed afterwards. But like Bernie is getting real horny <laughs> up in there, especially when he's like describing uh, like the perfect sex that they have. But it's more like, I don't know, it's not a dirty horny. It's a horny of love. Yeah, <laughs> there's yeah, there's a wholesomeness to Bernie Mac's desire in this movie, and I think it's I think it's kind of interesting because it's like you have his media persona, like the guy who will call you know all of his teammates little leaguers, and then you have you know his uh, persona when he's you know with his girl, and it, you know it's much more vulnerable, like um, like that scene where they're about to have sex and Al Green is playing. And he realizes that uh, she's going to have to go the next day on a ESPN assignment, and the focus isn't, isn't on him anymore. And he kind of loses interest in having in having sex. And uh, I think that like that dichotomy is really interesting. Also, when they do finally have sex, and uh, she, you know she leaves the next day, I love the the gag of Bernie Mac being wrapped up in the blankets like a dress, watching her leave out of the front door window. <laughs> Oh my god, just getting completely dejected because his attempt at getting laid was being vulnerable and opening up about what he wanted with her, and she just walks out because, you know, sex was good, but like, come on. Uh, mm. And then like that needle drop that punctuates it. Oh my god. Ain't there something you can do right here in Milwaukee? Stan. <laughs> Stan. Stan, you're being very sweet. But we both know that uh, you ain't never been serious enough to go bringing up something like that. So I'll see you at the ballpark, slugger. 
Uh, the use of music between that and you drop and the Al Green one you mentioned earlier is really powerful in this film. I mean, that first scene where they almost have sex when they're at his house dancing to Al Green, the the facial expressions that are exchanged there between Bernie Mac and Angela Bassett are so charged. And uh, Armand White writes in this film about the acting uh, in Robert Brisson films, which might seem like a bit of a stretch, but I think that the amount uh, that Bernie is able to convey in these very clear and obvious gestures uh, brings like a different level of emotionality than you usually see from him. Uh, like the typical Bernie Mac makes sense for a few scenes in this, like when he is getting his number retired and he's being like kind of like a wrestler, almost like a hype man uh, for himself. And that works for him as a stand-up comedian who has so much of that energy behind him. Uh, but then when he is playing more sensitive or he is just playing the determination of his sport uh, or the total dejection of the future of the sport, like rejecting him, um, he's able to convey so much. It's like such a deep performance that always uh, has like stuck with me. But the last two recent times I've watched it has really, uh, really bowled me over. Yeah. Yeah. Max, you know, is at his most charismatic in this, you know, in this movie, I think I said on Letterboxd that Mac should have had his own Happy Madison because he was, you know, although two very different actors, kind of, I don't know, it, it, it had that Sandler feeling to me of its, uh, damn, oh, yeah. I don't know, I don't know how to explain that actually, but. Well, I mean, I think in terms of the character that he's playing, it's like an exaggerated over the top persona. Um, I mean, it's the exaggerated persona and it's the style of comedy, I think, with like mm -hmm. cutting to side characters who have all have their little gimmicks and stuff like that. You know, like the the middle infield on this Brewers team, they're always having their little contests and you got the the Japanese guy who doesn't know how to cuss, which is one of my favorite bits uh, for <laughs> sure. Son of a bitch. Good, good, good. After the game, we pick up a... For a baseball movie, it does kind of get into the ins and outs. You know, it's very interested in like the small parts of baseball. Like I got like that montage scene where their training comes to mind and there's, you know, the players, you know, stretching their legs on the field, on the field, and they, you know, they look like uh, elegant swans, or you know, even like some dugout scenes, like the emphasis on the sunflower seeds on the floor, and like the yeah. the Gatorade cups. I mean, even the kind of the climax of this movie, the you know, gets down to the meaning. It's like, what does it mean to make a sacrifice bunt? It's a, you know, for a baseball movie, I think this is really satisfying for all the sportos, as you would say. Yeah, I mean, that scene you described of them stretching and jogging uh, is so gracefully cut together and mm -hmm. like the movement and 
the the way that this film is shot i think stone and his cinematographer are really interested in the architecture and the geometry of these baseball stadiums especially the one that they're shooting at for the most part in milwaukee uh and of course like it's hard to pick a better uh more visually interesting stadium than that milwaukee one uh where the light comes in in such a strange way because it's so enclosed looking from the inside and you have the big slide and you have the sausage mascot guys it's really great selection there Mm -hmm. and i think this movie's like kind of deceptively visually savvy like as you as you're talking about like like uh in its uh transitions from you know sports center to real life and um you know i like uh i think i think where this movie really stands out is in its uh visually is in its transitions and montages they're all very elegant and uh they all just feel exactly right for what's going on oh yeah the montage is really effective here there's one dissolve here that just absolutely fucking knocked me over uh when he first decides that he has to go back you know what let me get to the shot let me say the premise of the movie first because i realize we've been talking about it mm-hmm. without saying what happens in the movie bernie mac retires after he gets his three thousandth hit uh he can't get into the hall of fame because he burned the writers too bad they hate him so much and then it looks like he's gonna get in maybe and it turns out that three of his hits did not count because of an accounting error. So now he has no shot because those three hits mean everything into the world to these baseball writers who are the biggest statistical fetishists you will ever meet. Uh, all they care about is big round numbers. So he decides to return to the game at age 47. Uh, at this point, he hits the batting cages at like a mini golf place. You know, it's like not even a sports facility, clearly. But there's this really amazing dissolve where he's taking BP from the machines and it dissolves to the front office of the Brewers uh, through this baseball that's on a desk. You know, it, the second shot it dissolves to is with a baseball in close up. And it looks like Bernie Mac is inside of the baseball. Uh, you know, from that wide shot of him taking batting practice. And then once the dissolve finishes, it rack focuses out from the baseball to Bernie Mac in medium. And it's like one of the most ridiculously efficient and beautiful and stunning things that just did not need to be there. But they decided to flex that hard at that moment, you know? Yeah, you know, uh, Charles Stone knows you gotta you gotta put in craft into what you do. And to speak, to speak to the montages, I mean, I think also what's great about this movie is that it knows why Bernie Mac is funny. And I bet Bernie Mac had a lot to do with that. But like uh, during like his uh, training montage where he's working out with the personal trainers, the YMCA montage, I mean, just like Bernie Mac doing Soul Cycle with a bunch of fit ladies, just pure visual <laughs> joy. Pure visual joy just to see Mac at first failing and then, you know... As the montage goes on, he's just one of the other soul cyclers and he's smiling along with them. And it's just like, that's, that's not only is that hilarious, but it's just so pleasant to see. No, Bernie Mac's like enthusiasm and his charisma through those montages is so incredible. You know, the way that he's like trying to flirt with the ladies at the soul cycle by looking at them while he's just dying, unable (laughs) to keep up with them and just letting water fall out of his mouth is just amazing. Uh, there's also a moment where he is having a nightmare about never being able to hit again because, you know, he gets called back up to his old team, the Brewers, and 
he tries to get his last three hits in the last month of the season or whatever, and he can't hit for shit because he's an old man who's been away from the game for so long. And he has a nightmare where a pitcher throws a pitch and he swings at it three times in a row and strikes out like in Baseball Bugs, the Looney Tunes. Uh, and then it cuts from him having that nightmare to that very Looney Tunes short, uh, the next part of that short. And it's like... I don't know, all of the detail that goes into these little bits that make up this film reveal it as being such more dense movie than people gave it credit for. No, yeah, I, I want to read a, a quote from uh, Armand Dwight's review because I think he, I mean, he's the only critic I know that championed this movie. And uh, I think he, oh, yeah, he, for sure. he gets at an interesting uh, part of this movie that I feel like maybe people would overlook. You know, especially film critics... You know, they may not even know sports, so they may not even know this. White says, Ross first appears to be a stupid, egotistical jock, but he responds to the baseball institution with a sense of humor. He's always wary, always keeping mindful of his own conscience. Ross, Ross's intelligence shows in, in his business sense, which comes down to a shrewd, if cynical, people sense. And I think this is what's really interesting about the movie. is kind of like this kind of... Uh, false truth in sports where we we value legacy so much but um you know if you if you're too outwardly forward with that like uh stan ross is, is in this movie become a villain you know he's um and he's you know he's dissatisfied with the results ultimately of him chasing his legacy right he tells uh the young superstar on the team you know you got to be more about the team you got to be less about yourself um but then you know Later on into the movie, he slips in back into those habits just because this is where the baseball institution pushes him. He's chosen the role as a baseball villain, and he kind of has to fulfill that whether he likes it or not. And then, of course, at the end, he reverses that. But I think and then, and uh, it's kind of corny, but like in a way that's uh, less corny than most sports movies. And, you know, I, I love it anyways, you know, so maybe even corny is not even the right adjective. I mean, corny is fine. He calls it corny in the voiceover at the end. And there's no voiceover in the movie until the end when he is calling it corny. Like, he knows, you know. Uh, and I love that ending. But uh, I think that this film does a really good job of showing how uh, ever-encapsulating media is in sports. And how you can't escape it. And how he has to play into that role. And it's like the attention to detail there of the channel flipping and Sports Center again. Like uh, the, our last film, he watches himself on Sports Center, like Owen Wilson does, and mm -hmm. Stuart Scott uh, does quite a bit of good bits in this film. Uh, you know, making fun of uh, Stan Ross's lack of prowess at the plate, and then also uh, that young player uh, who's named. T-Rex Pennebaker, uh, <laughs> who is the new star of the Brewers, he's introduced through a commercial for the MVP Baseball Series by EA Sports, uh, where his character is hitting a home run in the advertisement. And uh, by the way, MVP Baseball 04, getting a lot of play in this movie. MVP 05, maybe my favorite sports game of all time. So a little added bonus for guys <laughs> like me. No, I mean, yeah, the attention to media in this movie is definitely very smart. And it's, you know, visually represented in that scene where Ross is, you know, maybe at his lowest point in his comeback. And you see, uh, I think it's that damn sports talk show or whatever. Tom Arnold's like... It was called Best Damn Sports Show, period. <laughs> yeah, that one. And um, we uh, Ross is watching it and then, you know, camera swings. And then, lo and behold, uh, Tom Arnold and the crew are in his 
living room talking right at him. And it, you know, it really shows the impact that it has on this player. But then later, when Ross appears on these shows, they take it all back and they were just, you know, they were just like, we were just doing that for the show, man. Like, it really kind of pulls back the curtain in a way. Oh, I love the line in there that he says to Tom Arnold where he's like, he's only famous because of Roseanne. That's uh, <laughs> such a great dig. <laughs> um, so the way that the film wraps up, uh, it seems like he's helping out his team. He taught T-Rex how to be a team leader rather than an individualist player. And their goal is to get third place, uh, which wouldn't even be enough for the playoffs. And that's what I love about this is like baseball being about these small games within the game. Like if you watch John Boyce's history of the Seattle Mariners, I think that's the best examination of this phenomenon within baseball, where there's so much more to the narratives of baseball than success itself. Uh, and I think that this film also does a good job of portraying that, but still letting the uh, team's success win out in the end. So at the very end, he's one hit shy. Uh, I love that his hits, uh, the two that he gets, are a broken bat infield dribbler and a home run, <laughs> a go-ahead home run. And then this time, T-Rex is on second, and what he does is it looks like he's going to steal for third. So Bernie Mac, rather than going for his 3,000th hit proper, lays down a sacrifice bunt. Uh, the suicide squeeze, as it's called, is on as T-Rex rounds third and scores. And uh, Stan Ross does not get his 3,000th hit, but the team wins and he gets the ball, just like in the beginning when he gets what he first thinks is hit number 3,000. Instead of hanging on to that ball, he tosses it back into the crowd like the end of fucking Wagon Master when the guy tosses the gun. Uh, just absolutely beautiful. Uh, and then you get the corny outro where he lives happily ever after with Angela Bassett's character and gets into the Hall of Fame and ends it with being a dick pill salesman. Great oh, ending. Mm, fantastic, fantastic ending. And yeah, I think, yeah, there's so much... Um, there's so much emphasis on Ross, you know, being aware of what he's doing for his own, you know, sports persona. And then for him to lay down that suicide squeeze is almost kind of like an extinguishing of those demons, right? You know, he's built his whole uh, persona around having 3,000 hits. You know, he has uh, like a bar, a Chinese restaurant, a whole shopping center, you know, with uh, 3,000 in the title. And uh, he kind of... Uh, buries his legacy, but at the same time uh, confirms it, but buries his legacy and kind of extinguishes, you know, kind of like this arbitrary goal in sports, right? Because if you think about it, you know, that's just one hit differential. Why would that make a difference? But, you know, and at the end, he, you know, you don't see him um, at his shops. You see him at a selling ice cream out of a, a Mr. 2999 uh, shop, uh, reliving, <laughs> you know, an uh, relayed to his teammates as a kid. Yeah, I think this is a really great film. Uh, a few more things I wanted to point out. Also, he does go on part in the interruption, which is a great thrill for fans of that television show. <laughs> uh, also, another thing is that Armand White used this on his classic better than list for 2004 uh comparing it to before sunset of all films <laughs> i could not get a hold of that list though so i don't know what the king said but anyway uh rest in peace to Stuart scott who does great in his espn bits in this film um this is a great film i mean rest in peace bernie mac of course mm -hmm. 
it really is a great film about the games within the game of baseball. And it also has this great, you know, romantic side hustle to it. Uh, and Stone is such like a, a confident director in this, more so than in something like Uncle Drew. Uh, and I think it might have to do with the tastes of contemporary culture now versus then. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, for its approach to baseball and for its interplay between television and, uh, you know, film and even baseball video games, I'm going to go ahead and give this four bullets. I'm going to give it four bullets as well. I mean, Mac really shows his chops here. It makes me want to go seek out other movies he was in just to see, you know, even if they weren't critically praised, you know, I think his charisma is enough for a movie to float on. And, you know, it's what makes this movie even better is that the direction is, you know, like you said, very confident, very competent, and, you know, occasionally stylistic. And, uh, you know, to get that all from like a, a sports slash romantic comedy hybrid is, I mean, that's all you could really ask for from this type of movie. And, um, it really delivers. And, you know, I, I really, I, I love this movie. JT, what do you think? Um, yeah, I'm going to toss up four bullets for this one as well. I mean, like, I think the biggest thing for me is like with most comedies, it's uh, judging it. It's really fucking funny. And so on that level, it's got a lot going for it there. Um, I don't know the, just the story in general being like an eastbound and down style, uh, <laughs> baseball comeback about like someone who had fallen out of grace. I think like there was a lot of overlap in interest there. I mean, a lot less vulgar than eastbound and down, but still like in that, uh, like, uh, Ro uh, Ross is very much so in the Kenny powers milieu. But I think, like, I mean, while this is very different from How Do You Know in terms of, like, type of comedy that's going on, I think there's, like, an overlapping specificity of character that while this is goofier, I think both movies really succeed because there are such specific weird characters. Like, one side character that I wanted to mention um, was, like, his friend Boca who he uh, calls Boca because he's constantly dressed in tracksuits and he says that he should be uh, living in Boca Raton and then of course at the end winds up living in Boca Raton and just like I don't know the Tom Arnold side bit like even like Max charisma is what really steers this ship but so much is like built around this um, that's such a real little world that's uh, really fun to be in. Damn, all three of us went four bullets on both films. Talk about a double shot of the sixth sense. <laughs> um, oh, also, one other thing I wanted to say about this film is that when Bernie Mac receives the information that there had been a miscount, uh, it's just like when George Bush got the call uh, <laughs> that 9-11 had happened because Bernie Mac is doing this like reading is dope foundation where he's reading to little kids. And uh, look, pull up a side-by-side -side comparison. I'm not lying. It's It's got to be a direct reference. So shout out to Charles Stone III for that. <laughs> very, very bold in a post-9-11 universe. Um, yeah. I think, I think what, you know, is a real testament to this movie, we didn't even really talk about how funny it is. Like, we were just singing its, singing its praises. But it's a, it's a really fucking funny movie, which, you know... Oh, should yeah. Count, should count for something. I mean, it is a comedy first and foremost, right? And yeah. it's fucking funny. But I think that's what's so great about it is that there's so much to talk about beyond that. So anyway, 
um we bid you bye and uh we'll see you next week gonna be talking about speed racer and office space with tim tui uh, jt's friend and uh now our friend because we already recorded the episode how does that work right yeah we had a blast it's a good one yeah watch so, out for it <laughs> just watch it's out also the gripping season one finale of extended clip see what happens you're not going to want to miss it. You don't want to be at the water cooler at work next week on Saturday. And everyone's going to be like, oh, yeah, you see what happened on Extended Clip yesterday? True, true. And much like anything with seasons, right, you want to be on the ground floor on the first season, right? Like, you know, eventually oh, yeah. this is going to be a Game of Thrones type situation where by the third season, everyone's fucking listening to this shit. And like, I'll have to go back to season one to fully get it. I got to listen to all the episodes. You know, s- stay up with the trends. You know, invest in us early. Yeah, you can start hating us by season two if you're in on the ground floor on season one. That's fair. Bye.